there was a play that we were thinking about doing and we didn't understand it. I mean, let's be, let's be honest. Yes, was, we didn't understand There it. was a play that we want, that we thought about maybe producing, but on the page, it sat there really intimidating us. It was, it was, a, it was a tough play to read. You've clicked on Behind the Buzz, a public fit theater company's podcast scrutinizing the myriad details that made up the production of some of our most popular past shows. I'm Joe Kukin, producing director here at APF in Las Vegas, Nevada, joined by artistic director Anne-Marie Pereth, and together we'll be telling stories about the work that went into bringing these very special plays to life. This is episode number one, number one, and today the conversation will be about Margaret Edson's wit, uh, the opening show of our 2017-2018 season. We'll be joined by actors Tina Rice... Andrew Calvert, as well as uh, Barbara Caldwell, a nurse practitioner with Comprehensive Cancer Centers of Nevada, who was instrumental in, in, in not only staging the medical moments uh, in the play, but also in connecting our company with real-life patients struggling with the very um, specific disease that was the focus of Edson's Pulitzer Prize-winning work. So, let's talk about wit. You know, A.M., we should probably... Uh, talk a little bit about the origin of a public fit theater company, just as a, as a, as a company and how we came to be, there might be people who haven't heard the story or, or want to hear it again because it's just a good one. Well, uh, I don't think most people know this, but you and I have known each other for what, about 40 years, about 40, 45 years. Yeah. <laughs> a long time. And we were raised in Las Vegas uh -huh. and we went, we uh, were part of a, a children's theater where we got our training. Um, Having been part of this community for like a really long time, we wanted to create a theater company that was a professional theater company, and we wanted to pay artists. Well, Vegas deserves it, right? I mean, it, mm -hmm. we have seen um, small theaters come and go, and people have tried it before, mm -hmm. and and there's always been a, a, a sort of understanding that Vegas wasn't ready for uh, well, that Vegas type of theater. Well, Vegas is known as an entertainment capital. So right. people automatically assume that because it's in the entertainment capital of the world that it's also a theatrical city. But um, once a lot of um, entertainers move here who have their origins in the theater, they realize that there are not a lot of professional theater companies here. So we decided that we were going to do that. There was a play that we were thinking about doing and we didn't understand it. I mean, let's be, let's be honest. <laughs> yes, there was, we didn't understand There it. was a play that we, want, that we thought about maybe producing, but on the page, it sat there really intimidating us. It was... It was a, it was a tough play to read. It just was to Adam and, Box Thugs. Yeah, Thugs by Adam Bach, part yeah. of his Office trilogy. Yes, and uh, it, it was a really tough read. Just just sitting there on the page. So we so we got together with our buddies, our theatrical buddies, some of them of which who had not left for New York and L.A. yet, and we read the play out loud, out loud, yeah, with each other, and then we had this wonderful discussion about the play. And I think that we all agreed that the discussion afterwards was informed the play yeah well and it was a lot of fun it was maybe you know two or three times as much fun as actually just reading it and we were getting emails from a bunch of our friends from all over the city saying hey i hear you guys are reading plays <laughs> and so then we were encouraged to go public here we are and here we are that first play Seven years later yeah that first <laughs> play um we ran for i think just two weekends a very short run i know in a theater that wasn't ours i'd love to see that play again and uh, won a bunch of awards that year, I think. Yeah, we did. And 
we went on to produce, what, six more seasons? The entire time, we continued doing the readings, and we still do the readings. I think right now we consider ourselves doing a seven-show season with three shows um, in full production mode and then four shows done as stage readings. Through that whole process, we've had a, our actual theater space has evolved from what was literally a bare floor, empty, dusty, dirty, decrepit warehouse and is now a functional black box theater with a full <laughs> bar and nightclub attached. Um, I, I, that's been a remark. That's a whole other story. That yeah, revolution. we've come a long way, baby. We have come a long way, baby. <laughs> Um, and, and then, you know, and we continued as well with, as we produced these shows, we continued the, the readings and, and kept true to our sort of original love, which was the discussion afterwards. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, we've taken to calling those discussions, the buzz and where some companies will do, uh, a, a talk back, maybe on a, on a Sunday matinee once during the run of a show, uh, a public fit theater company, we buzz after every performance. We buzz after every reading. We buzz pretty much after everything we do. We invite the audience to come back and and talk with us about their experience, about the themes of the play, the style of the show, what the playwright intended, and what they sort of uh, gleaned from the theatrical experience. We call that, and it, it sounds a little pretentious, but I'm going to stand by it. We call that the unending conversation, and we truly believe that that connection um, with our audiences make for some of the most engaged, um, connected audiences in, in town. They're certainly enthusiastic. Sometimes audiences will have some amazing insight and we, and we will have blind spots in our storytelling. Well, it's, it's, it's a reminder that, that audiences will, um, will discover and take away from every moment that you present on, on stage to the, the good and the bad, they will assign meaning to and, and, uh, and, and interpret those moments for themselves in, in often very unique ways. So, Let's talk about wit. Henry, you want to tell us about wit, what it's about, and, and a little bit about its history? Well, Margaret Edson is the playwright of wit, and when she was getting her education, she decided that she wanted to work um, at a part-time job in the oncology department uh, in the 1980s, I think. And she was around a lot of ovarian cancer patients which gave her the idea to write WIT. And it saw its actual original production at South Coast Rep, uh, which is in Costa Mesa, California, in 1995. But what I think is interesting is that it didn't hit the off-Broadway scene until 1999. And if I remember in my research correctly, I think that the play was a bit longer. She, they had oh, to do- A lot longer. Yeah, they cut like an hour yeah, and a half out of it. Yeah, they had to do some revisions. So it- I bet you they workshopped it uh, in order to get it uh, into the state that it is now. Yeah. And it's the only play that, sh that, that Margaret Edson had written, right? Actually, yes. Yeah, it is. one and done. Win the Pulitzer. Uh... I think she won the Pulitzer and then she went into grad school. And then her grad school teacher had to teach a student <laughs> who had won a Pulitzer. Sitting in the front row. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a little intimidating. I would, I would think so. And she had, after all of this acclaim, and you know, there was a, a film made of it. It finally reached Broadway uh, in in 2012 with a with a revival starring um, Cynthia Nixon. But after all of this, Margaret Edson went back to to teaching. Right? She's no, she's not in the in the theater world much yeah, anymore. Yeah, she was getting the training in order to be a like renaissance uh 
like scholar, yeah. like uh, in literature. But she ended up spending the summer doing some volunteer work and helping children learn how to read. And from that point, she was hooked and she changed the direction of her life and became a school teacher. And that's what she's doing now. She's actually working with, with kids with reading I think reading she lives in Atlanta, and... Georgia, and I think she's a social studies teacher. That's remarkable. You know, Wit actually won the Pulitzer without seeing a Broadway run. In fact, when it premiered with Kathleen Chalfant, right? Yeah, uh, received a lot of acclaim, but but uh, never made that switch to Broadway. In fact, it won the Pulitzer before being on Broadway. It was made into a movie. Uh, and then finally, it didn't see a Broadway run until 2012 when there was a revival with Cynthia Nixon. So Wit is basically about a woman who is an Ivy League scholar. And she starts off the play by telling us that she has cancer. And throughout the play, we come to find out that she receives eight rounds of chemotherapy and all of her strategies in life, her, her intellect, her strength, her toughness don't serve her. What ends up being the big discovery in life is about her finding compassion um, with a particular nurse named Susie. And she discovers that compassion and love over a simple thing as a popsicle. I think it's important just to point out for those that may not have seen the play too, that it really is, it's pretty much a one woman show, right? Vivian Baring never leaves the stage. She talks directly to the audience. She, she, there's no fourth wall at all, although there are a number of, of flashbacks in the play, but she really, it's, it's a, a very long monologue with interspersed scenes. I would describe it that way. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. I, I hate to say that it is a one woman show. I no, you're right. I, I don't mean to contradict you, but or, or dis, I, yeah, and I don't mean to disparage the other actors in the play because but that's I feel exactly... like Susie really serves the play, uh, and that's the nurse who has a lot of compassion. And I feel like Andrew's role of Jason Posner, he he is the antagonist uh, vehicle in the play. There, there are a lot of important you're, characters. You're, you're absolutely right. I think I'm just, I, I wanted to draw focus to, I think the, the, the fourth wall breaking monologues of the show, the way the audience is treated sort of as her confidant as she goes through this process. And you mentioned, you know, the eight sessions of chemotherapy, but it's, it's experimental chemotherapy and really harsh, um, um, it's very serious. Well, I think the premise of the chemotherapy is nobody's been given that much chemotherapy and survived. And because she's tough, she does survive the eight rounds, but then eventually gives into it. So what was it about the play that, that it finally ended up being on our short list of, of shows to do? Why, why did you choose WIT to, to put into the season? Well, I was teaching women's playwrights at UNLV, and I had a spectacular experience with my students that semester. And that play ended up having the most profound effect on them. So it really made me take a step back and look at the seriousness of that play. Well, wait a second. What was it about the show that a profound impact in what way? I think they were all touched by her journey in terms of how she was such a guarded character and how her discovery of finding connection even though it's very late in her life, right before she dies, that that was what had a profound effect on the students. And I thought, well, if it's having a profound effect on people who are so young, right, who are just starting life, then I think also that it would have a profound effect on, on multiple people on our audience. Hi, Anna Marie, it's Ginger Call. 
Sure, you call uh, so late. Uh, we thought we would be able to go uh, come to the thing tomorrow night, but you know, the second treatment has really been a lot tougher on me, and um, I am at day 11, and days 10 to 14 are when your platelets and white counts go down the lowest. So I'm really not supposed to be around anybody. So I had talked to my nuclear nurse today and I got, you know, this is the second treatment. I'm going to do six or I'm going to try to do six. So, uh, After I met Barbara Caldwell, I asked her if there was a particular patient that I could have a closer relationship with that wouldn't mind, maybe this is the wrong word, but mentor me through this process uh, of ovarian cancer. And so she (laughs) introduced me to Virginia Tangadol. Gigi. Ginger. <laughs> Ginger, right. <laughs> she has a bunch of names, and rightly so, because she she is just a bigger-than-life person. And, and so I, uh, I met her, and uh, it was my understanding that she had stage 4 ovarian cancer, and she had been battling this for quite some time. And so they were trying out another round of chemotherapy on her and that didn't really work. So they were trying out some alternative medicines in order to extend her life so that she could have some, some quality of life before she went. She had the most profound effect on me just because of her not being a, her not being scared of life. Like she took all of these really difficult situations in her life and she took them head on and um, she was a brave and courageous person. And now she was in this particular situation where she had ovarian cancer and she didn't let ovarian cancer take the spunk out of her. And so um, through my process of getting to know Gigi, she taught me all these profound lessons about how to live life on a daily basis, how, uh, to, how to die, she 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 paved the way she provided a model for me because we're all going to die i thought well if i ever get uh ovarian cancer if i ever get a particular disease i'm gonna die going out like a ball of flames like this particular woman because she just was the epitome of like vibrant electric on fire love and that, that fiery love attracted all of these people into her life. So she, unlike Vivian Baring, she didn't die alone. She died surrounded by a glorious army of friends. And joining us in this conversation today, we have Tina Rice. Hi, Joe. Hi, Tina. Thanks for coming. Tina is uh, actually, as well as being an acting a member of the acting company of a public theater company, Tina also serves as our, our CFO. You're a numbers nerd. I am. I love the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and with, with Tina, uh, we were also joined by Andrew Calvert. Hello. That's all you got? 
What would you like me to say? That's enough. So <laughs> Andrew Coward is a member of our acting company, and he's also on our staff. He serves as our, our volunteer coordinator. So if you get a wild hair up your butt and want to come uh, volunteer for um, any of the backstage work with Public Fit, reach out to Andrew and he'll he'll set you up. Indeed. Yeah. today. Great. That's just great. This is not my standard greeting, I assure you. I tend towards something a little more formal, a little less inquisitive, such as say, hello. Uh, so let me first introduce Tina Rice. You had the very daunting task of playing the lead. Uh, Vivian Baring in in Wit. I had the extraordinary pleasure of playing the lead of Wit. It was a daunting task, but I also remember it as being uh, an extremely special time. So what I enjoyed special? it very much. Um, it's a type of role that doesn't come around all the time. It's kind of once in a lifetime role, and I think the uh, subject matter being cancer. I realized going through the buzzes after the show. That it touches so many people on so many different ways. Everybody seemed to have a relationship that um, either they had a loved one, they themselves had had experience with cancer. Uh, everybody had a story and seemed to relate to cancer in some way. In your interactions with with Virginia, um, did you did you draw from her to create Vivian at all? I mean, she was not Vivian-esque, but yeah, that's uh, true. They were, they were different characters. <clears throat> they're much different people yeah. entirely. But what I, I I remember the same way, and Marie remembers that she just had so much life still to want to live. So she still had so much fight in her, and so much um, fire and pep. And she had a really good, positive attitude. And so I don't think that. The the one the the biggest thing for me that I took away from her was that nobody goes into the experience. I don't think, unless you're really depressed, wanting it to end. I think you all go in with that that glimmer of hope and optimism that you're going to come out on the other side. I just remember that she was there uh, the day that you uh, had your head shaved because you didn't do that yourself. First of all, were you nervous about shaving your head? No, I wasn't at all. Um, really. Yeah, really. The only thing that I kept hearing was, it's not going to grow back. But I kept thinking, are you guys insane? And nobody, of course, hair grows back. That's the most ridiculous thing. But it did. Like, there's a little guy in, your, in the back of your brain going, no, you might be bald forever. So Who is bald forever with, I mean, obviously, yes. My clear, yes, the example of me is not a very good one. But, but clearly, I couldn't even get it bald enough some nights because I have such thick, coarse uh, very, very resilient follicles. I want that to, I want just to want to keep it. growing. You were really stubborn. I remember you were just... you're like, "Oh my god, it's so cold." It was very breezy. It was very breezy. Well, tell me. So that so we had we had a woman come in to a professional hairdresser. In this case, a hair undresser <laughs> to come in and shave you down like a sheep. We had you yeah. shorn like a like a piece of livestock. <laughs> what was that? What was that first razor stroke like? Um, I it, it's just to me it was 
God, this is really, there's this line, right? That people had this experience and lost their hair and were traumatized by that's it. That's why I keep bringing it up because that's supposed to be the standard. So I don't mean to be, to, to be flippant about the fact that, yeah, my hair was gone, but at the same time of all of the things that play was, that part just didn't scare me at all. I was so, so much more scared about so many other things about that production that the hair part was really just the thing that helped me um, release and identify and, you know, get a little bit more into that character. And actually, for that period of time, it's extremely liberating. I highly recommend it. <laughs> To go ball just once because you don't you don't really get that opportunity. So I've enjoyed it, was... it myself. Yeah, <laughs> I have enjoyed it. Well, you had so the very. Uh, do you remember the the? Um, it was either I think it was was wet tech, wasn't it? Our first wet tech rehearsal. It was. We it broke was. for lunch. Uh, what yeah. do you, you, okay, you want to tell so, that story? <laughs> this one time, I shaved my head, and <laughs> it was wet tech for wit, and uh, so we had uh, I don't know an hour for lunch. For break for dinner break or whatever the break was, and it wasn't a long time, and so we visited one of the neighboring re uh, restaurants, and we're on a timeline, so we knew that because we have a very 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 strong stage manager who's going to <laughs> make sure that we're back on time or we're going to hear about it. So we had a uh, we had a lovely dinner lunch and it started to take a long time it started to take a long time for the food to come it started to take a long time for um uh for things to and then the bill and then to settle up well of course i am bald now and uh i think i had put a cap on yeah but you also had and then i had the lead so the the thing that the port that medication is dispensed into a, a patient's body is then attached to this lead that uh, is exposed and that allows the person to easy, easily tap into the port to the body to give you medication. So they don't have to keep poking you with a needle. So I had this thing, it wasn't real obviously, but it was taped to my body and I think the lead was poking out the top of my shirt and I wasn't even thinking about it. I wasn't at all. And so I try to go to the, our server who's very sweet and I say, oh, we gotta, we, we really have to go. We, we kind of have to go. I'm so sorry. Can we go ahead and get our bills and wherever we are in our meals, we just got to dash real fast. And so she starts to bring everybody's check and I notice she hasn't brought mine and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to be in so much trouble. I'm going to get in trouble for my stage I, so I go to her, you know, I'm really, really sorry, but I still haven't got my bill yet and um, I need to get back. And so I just wonder if I could, she goes, don't, she, she, she um, paused. She put her hand on me. She said, don't worry about it. It's taken care of. And I'm just thinking, racking my brain going like, what is she talking about? I don't know what you're, and then I start to piece everything together because I'm smart <laughs> that, oh, I'm bald. I've got some medical thing popping out my shirt. I look <laughs> like I'm sick and she's doing me a solid by buying my meal. <laughs> and I felt terrible. And this is the best part and why I'm going to hell is because I couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> we were so late and I had to leave. We all did. And they were, uh, everybody was paying. And I was just like, oh, 
okay, thanks. <laughs> so I basically just lied to that server that I had cancer. But, but, I, I had but this cancer. was so, so, so wet tech, just to be a, a big nerd for a second, wet tech is, it, it's wet because the actors are involved. Dry tech is a tech without actors that we just run through the queues. But the wet tech is where the actors are involved. So this was the first time you'd been on stage with all of the lights and the, the tech coming together. And then we had, and that's literally one week before the show opens, right? Five days. And I just remember... <laughs> In this time with this huge line loan that you had for the next two days, you just fretting about whether you could go back to the restaurant. Oh, I know. And pay, and pay the bill and explain to them why you were you did why you dined in dash. I know, I know. I I I and you know uh, I I never did. <laughs> I never did. I never did. Oh my gosh! It's and by the late. time I did go back, that server wasn't there, and she's not going to give two toots about who I am or what I'm doing or well, let's care about my restaurant. <laughs> but, yeah. But I just, I felt horrible, but I did realize obviously at that moment that I looked like I might have cancer. <laughs> did that, I was going to say, did that give you in, any inspiration or confidence that you were headed in the right direction? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I, it did color, I guess, the way that I really needed to be careful about the way I presented myself going forward. <laughs> so we're looking back at this three years past now, and it was a very successful production for us at, at, at APF. And it, it got you a lot of attention. You were you received a, a Vegas Valley Theater Award for Best Actor that year, or Best Actress that year. I guess we're still gendering actors as Best Actress that year. Yeah? Yes, yes. And I think you got a mention in... in uh, um, from NPR or from um, the, the Desert Companion. Is that right? That is correct. I think it was Actress of the Year. Yes, Actress <laughs> of the Year. Sing it loud, lady. So it, looking back, what do you consider like the, the triumphs of that show for you personally? Did you, do you feel a, a triumph? Do you look back at that with pride? And, and Oh my gosh, I do. I don't... Um, I do for me personally. I don't know necessarily always what the experience is like as a on the other side. However, aside from the personal reward of doing that kind of part, there was the very visual and palpable experience from the audience for this particular production. I had friends come see me who probably hadn't seen me before who were bawling after the show and I don't necessarily that's not the goal to have people bawling after the show but what I remember were some friends coming to me and telling me I didn't know you had that to offer I didn't know you were that can I interject yeah um you know something just observing you um with APF all of these years is once you did Vivian Baring it seems like you built a foundation in yourself that any role that has come after that, you're like, well, I did Vivian Baring. And not that you are like, well, I got the rest of them, the rest are in the bag, but it, it, it made you um, more confident for, for future roles because it was such a monumental part. Yeah. What's your, what was your training? Where'd you, where'd you go to school? I went to Webster University and mm -hmm. studied in a conservatory for four years. For musical theater, you, for you, musical theater. Is that, you think that's why your friends might have been surprised because you weren't you weren't singing? Uh, I'm you just a girl who can't say no. You, 
commenting musical theater snots deep? <laughs> uh, I'm suggesting that the the roles that you might have played in, uh, you know, Oklahoma. They're not. They're okay. not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're not like that. Well, another thing too was me personally, Tina, was not used to um, all of that kind of emotion of that life and death on stage kind of experience. And I was really worried I wasn't going to be able to click into that. And luckily, for some reason, I really just got so attached to her and really that um, it wasn't like I, it was hard for me to explain. It's it wasn't Tina up there doing that. I wasn't thinking about my dead dog, and I wasn't trying to come up with some machination to get me to an emotional place. I really did feel for the first time as an actor, and it only took me forty something years. But it, I did really did feel like it was a manufacture of the process, and me connecting with who that character was, and the language, and the circumstance. And the story. And so it wasn't a chore necessarily. I, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to get there all the time, but it wasn't a chore. It was um, actually very cathartic and interesting and mentally challenging and emotionally a ride. And I really kind of weirdly enjoyed it. I realized that your dog died. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. He didn't. Professor Baring, I'm Dr. Posner, clinical fellow in the medical oncology branch working with Dr. Kalidia. Uh, Professor Baring, I, uh, I was an undergraduate at the U. I took your course in 17th century poetry. You did? Yes, I, I thought it was excellent. Thank you. Were you an English major? No, biochemistry, but you can't get into med school unless you're well-rounded. And I made a bet with myself that I could get an A in the three hardest courses on campus. Well, how'd you do, Jay? Success. Really? <laughs> a minus. <laughs> so, so, Andrew, you played, you played a doctor in Wit, Jason Posner. Jason and uh, your dad's a doctor. That must have been helpful. Yeah, very helpful. Um, I remember I'd actually had a, before I was cast, I had a trip planned back to, back home. Um, Pre-planned, which I th uh, was worried was going to get interrupted um the rehearsal process which it did but actually it was extremely useful to go back i remember sitting in the conservatory with him going through the script practically line by line and saying okay so what does this mean and yeah. what, what is he talking about what does this drug do what are the effects of this drug why is he saying this why is this important what kind of doctor is your dad uh he was in general practice for 40 years or oh. basically his entire career he was he specialized in sports medicine really um, i didn't know that yeah, he was actually, he traveled with the British athletics team. Um, I don't know what that so is. Is that the British athletics team? Oh, yeah. what you call it, track and field. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I do. We I did call not... it athletics. You call it track and field. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, he went to the Olympics a couple of times with, oh, with the British team. Oh, that's cool. Um, I had no idea. That's, uh, but that was, that was kind of, that was his side gig, of, uh, believe it or not. So, yeah, he, he spent most of his time. But it was, you know, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but he knew a tremendous amount about um, the script and he'd read the script before I'd even shown up. He's, he's that kind of dad. He was excited for this project for me. And it was, um, it was something I had been out of the, you know, been out of the game for a little bit. This was the first time I'd been uh, auditioned and been cast uh, with something, but. Wait, was this your first public fit show? 
Yeah, this was certainly the first uh, first time I've been cast in a public show. Yeah, absolutely. So it was huge because I didn't really know everybody very well. Yeah. Um, and it was obviously quite intimidating. I knew the standard and I knew the uh, the talent that I was in the room with. And you, I knew that from day one, from the read-throughs and the way that all the work was being approached. It was so familiar, but I hadn't been in a room quite like it in quite a long time. Um, and yeah, I needed to you know make sure pull my weight you know i didn't want to let anybody down and uh i wanted to and yeah do do my prep and and really know and bring my a game because you know it's one thing to say i'm not a doctor but i play one on tv but (laughs) you can tell who's who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't in you know shows or plays or whatever it is and it was it was it was important to me despite never having the uh ability i don't think to uh to ever really have made it as a doctor um was but i did a, need to know what i was talking about was that an interest of yours did you ever want to be a doctor no not at all no. no your dad didn't push you in that direction no not at all actually no they my my parents were um disgusting they were just super supportive of anything i wanted to do um so i am incredibly grateful for that because i had similar disgusting parents yeah i mean why they you know, i do remember my dad when i went to said that i wanted to go to drama school instead of going to university i think that was the first time he said pardon um <laughs> You know, without utter relentless support. And he his deal was that I had to get into, you know, you audition to get to, to drama school. Uh, his deal was I had to get into at least more than one in order to, <laughs> to, to, prove, to, prove, to prove that I wasn't, prove you know. Um, unfortunately, uh, I did. And, you know, he's the kind of dad that he took me. This was back when I was 18, 17, 18. He took me to all the auditions. And then he took me all to the second round of auditions to, to get in and uh, he su- he was able to support the work all, all the way through. So he was great. And so, yeah, like I said, when we sat down in the conservatory and we, we really broke it down, that was instrumental to everything. I mean, it changed everything. I, I was I was winging it to a certain extent in that first read-through, <laughs> struggling through those, you know, pretty big words, essentially. And I was like, it was, it's all Latin to me. Do you remember any of them? Do you remember any of those lines? The specifics of the what things the- that I have memories of, uh, his visualizations of the cells multiplying over and over. And his fascination with cancer and the the way that that exists as an organism as a as a thing versus anything else, and that's what was driving him the whole time, um, and to and a quest to find out why. Right. He in, 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 and if I'm remembering correctly, Jason's more of a researcher. He's really yeah absolutely. focused on the Vivian bearing as a. She's research. She literally says that. In There's a lot. Yeah, she's yeah. research. She's research. She's and this argument subject. whether or not to resuscitate at the end. Well, this brings me to asking about, I mean, it's funny that you, we talk about that character in being very clinical and uh, research oriented um, because you had some, I mean, you were pretty uncomfortable with some of the, the sort of physical stuff you had to do as a doctor with with at that time tina as a patient yeah i was more nervous than i was uncomfortable well, well jason um, was too right the character was oh just yeah that nervous too it really, well it, actually, it was it was just kind of going through a certain to a certain degree it was going through the motions but yeah it's never going to be fun to give a woman a pelvic exam well ted did so you had to learn how to do that i as, did i did kind of get over that um, probably a bit too much and with confidence um, i've since learned that while i thought i was being uh, a respectful actor i probably could have been more a bit more gentle with those pelvic exams oh is that true as i went prodding around 
Um, he wasn't shy. <laughs> he went right in. <laughs> so what does that what does that mean? Well, my hand we, was under the sheet. I couldn't actually tell. His hands tell are very large. Well, all, we, <laughs> all we saw from this end was him was a sheet and stuff moved around in the sheet. I never knew that there yeah, was. Well, I don't know if you can see through sheets, but no. I don't think Andrew can either. Oh. No. So, I, I mean, I knew I was prodding, but I thought I was definitely prodding on, her, you know, around his stomach. and. I think it's called a bimanual. That That's what, right, bimanual. It yeah. was called a bimanual. Yeah, yeah, because it involves two hands. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And this was your first Sorry. time working together. You two had really, I mean, you were essentially strangers. Well, what was tricky about Wit, though, from like my perspective and indeed the rest of the cast, like the ensemble that we were able to work with um, was phenomenal, and especially the med students. I think those, to me, with a side of Tina, of course, pointing out the obvious, those were such the stars of the show because they made the show happen. We had a good cast of um actors in roles like myself and and barbara and marcus and sabrina of course but the med students not only did they play multiple different characters themselves but they were also um, moving around furniture all the time and as much as tina never left the stage um and was you know constantly on they were also on because as soon as they left the stage they were getting ready for the next um scene change that they were going to be a part of and i actually didn't have to deal with any of that responsibility because I was just the guy playing the doctor, so I didn't have to deal with the props and the the stuff on the wheel and getting it all right. And no matter, you could say any line in the play and they knew exactly whereabouts in the building they should be standing, whether it was on stage or off. Um, They were great. uh, Back to the pelvic exam. (laughs) Because I love me a pelvic exam. Uh, I think part of being uncomfortable was okay. So if there was something about it that was uncomfortable, that was supposed to happen. And so I didn't bother with us getting comfortable with it because I, I, it needed to be Well, I think it's Im- not, not more than okay. I think it's important. Yeah, I think so it needed to of... be awkward. It needed to be terrible. He wasn't good at his job at that time. Well, he not wasn't... just that. Well, if, um, maybe you forget, Tina, but he's actually a former student of hers. In the play, right, and he's a former student, Jason yeah. is a former student of Vivian's, and, and this pelvic exam comes on the heels of him going on about how much he respects her and, and enjoys her work and what great class she gives. Now spread your legs. Here I come. Yeah. yeah. He wants to impress her in that moment. Yeah. 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 I'm always impressed. And I'm always impressed uh-huh. with nurses and mm-hmm. doctors who have that um, ability and to make the distinction between, you know, the person as some, as a, as a gentle soul and the person is in, for lack of a better word, an object who has to be prodded, who has to have blood drawn from them, who has mm-hmm. to have blood pressure taken. You grab the wrist and you hold the arm out and you wrap the the uh, cuff around the arm to get the blood pressure. Those are th- not that you're necessarily being treated like me, but that was a theme of the play, wasn't it? Well, yeah, the theme of the play is that um, there are certain doctors that treat patients like objects and that there are certain nurses or um or doctors in the medical field who have a lot of humanity. And one of the things I remember that actually Andrew said in a buzz, and I think you got this from your father. Do you remember? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, just um, it came up a lot that uh, during the buzz that people were like, oh, yeah, I've met that doctor. What a terrible doctor he was. Um, Such a lack of humanity, a lack of bedside manner and so forth. Uh, and it's true. You'd, uh, well, it, a part of what they're saying is certainly true, that his bedside manner was um, horrendous. But it was something that my dad pointed out um, that I took to heart and challenged people with as well. Do you want the doctor that's going to save lives or do you want the doctor that's got the great bad bedside manner? Now, in a perfect world, of course, we would have both. But while and I would defend the character to a certain extent in that way, he was so driven by the science and wanting to quest uh, to, you know, the quest to 
discover and learn and know um, what essentially has been baffling doctors for years and years now, and no one's figured it out. No one's really gotten much further. He does have a great monologue where he extols the virtues of cancer in a in a pretty enthusiastic way. Yeah, yeah, that was really fun. I, I was able to like, kind of, it was the one time in the play where I kind of got to come to life a little bit, and I was zooming around on the on the chair on wheels. There's so many, so much of the um, furniture and props were on uh, wheels. It was a lot of fun, uh, and that was another example of. Yeah, just uh, and that, as I say, that was a great example of what was what was driving him the whole time. But I, but I think you're begging the question. I mean, I, I remember your dad saying that, but I think that begs the question that those two things are mutually exclusive and they cannot coexist. That you either have the doctor who is full of great bedside manner, or you have the doctor that saves your life, and that somehow it's impossible for those things to to coexist. And I don't understand that. I don't understand why that would be. I don't think it's impossible, but it's it's just simply not required if given the choice yeah given the choice sure it's nice but you know know, and i was also surprised to like in the buzz that people for me i'd rather have the doctor who would save my life because life is so important but people would choose to uh, be uh, cared for Mm. with compassion over having their life extended and that. that 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 would blow my mind and it wasn't until that question was raised by you in the buzz that i actually really thought about that with with some depth. One of the things that, that I want to talk about too was the the distinction. You guys can help too because you were both involved in well, you weren't involved in the vomit rocket scene, but you were certainly involved in Cold Blue. And that part of of Wit, Wit I think is approached as a very in some ways, even though she's talking to the audience, it's still a very realistic play in a lot of ways, right? The 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 medical staff behaves in a very realistic manner and, and um her her you know, discussions about her feelings are tend to be very realistic, but it has a flashback sequence. It has a lecture hall sequence. So there's elements of some expressionism in it. And we had decided early on. So I had this idea about when she was vomiting in the show that I didn't want it to be um, her just vomiting in one of those containers that you get at the hospital. I wanted Emesis basin. <laughs> yes. I wanted it to reflect what was happening on the inside, just like in terms of emotionally and mentally. And to me, the only thing that I could relate to is that moment, like when the room starts spinning, right? And you feel out of control or your mouth starts to get really acidic, right? And you feel like you're losing it. I wanted that to be expressed physically. So uh, I didn't know, I imagined that gurney being spun around this way. And so we had a rehearsal. I remember that rehearsal, just passing Tina around the room, throwing her, spinning her in, this, <laughs> yes. in the gurney. And, and, and she was a good sport. Yeah, was, <laughs> was it? Did, was, did you ever get nauseous at all? Was nah. It okay, nah. I don't, I don't yeah. Know. She but, loves roller coasters. And then, <laughs> so what? there was like this big thing, like this big swirl tornado thing. But then it ended up getting distilled down to this very uh, simple idea. I remember she you got pushed forward and then got pushed back and then turned around. It was it was it was pretty simple. And um but it was beautiful to me. And because I'm a dancer, I was like, "Oh, that's such a a beautiful way to express um such a awful moment." Uh, and so that kind of stuff gets me really excited in the theater. You want to co- you want to contrast that with the with the code blue scene? Oh, Code Blue was a nightmare. Code Blue is uh, the moment uh, where Vivian Baring dies, right? And so they call it Code Blue. And that's when all of the uh, hospital workers who are involved in that particular moment come in and they either decide to resuscitate or not resuscitate. 
And uh, in the hospital, it's a whole team. They have a code blue team that's yeah, and they come in with they, all this equipment, and yeah. you know, it's like a. And I don't know if that what actually happens in a hospital, but we had like six people, and you know, there's all these certain lines given in the circumstance that we have to you know pay attention to, and we didn't know what we we're doing because we are not we're we're not uh, hospital staff. So Joe and I usually are pretty together when we're when we're blocking something like ideas come to us really quickly, but we would work on that scene. We worked on it twice and we, we would get nowhere. And well, part of it too, was the timing. I mean, there was a, there was a lot that had to happen. Yeah. Yes. A lot of specific things that, that individual performers had to do at specific times with lines on top of it. Uh, and then we, you had the sort of, it's not really a sub story, but part of the story of the scene is, is, your character, Andrew, Jason comes in and tries to resuscitate her during during all of this as well. What I did appreciate is the theatricality of those types of moments that broke up the what could have been a really dry because of all of the language and because all of the things that are difficult, uh, the, the medical terminology and things that can come across as really dry, those theatrical moments, the vomit rocket and the code blue and all of the things that the ensemble would do to create a flashback or the space or whatever uh, really made such a difference. And I, I didn't feel alone on stage. I always felt supported and I always felt like... In fact, I don't know if you remember this, and I think it made you crazy. Uh, uh, we rehearsed with the ensemble for three weeks before we even rehearsed with you very much. We're like, oh, no, 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 we, we, Tina's fine. And so you were working by yourself quite a bit because we were setting up like the scaffolding for you to come into rehearsal. Do you remember that? Yeah. You yeah. sort of sat on the sat on the sides going over your over your lines. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was going to circle back to when we were talking about um uh, not I didn't really know Tina very well and giving her a pelvic exam. I knew the ensemble pretty much better because we had time, we had um off time off stage, right? We had in breaks in between scenes or uh, even in rehearsals, but uh the fundamental thing, one of the fundamental things about this show is that Vivian Baring never leaves the stage uh, which is huge so all those kind of down times when you might be getting to know each other or splitting between like tina was just always working 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 and the rest of us were, were off stage so i really didn't get to know you till much later like well after the show i knew you on I knew you on a pelvic exam basis <laughs> um, but nothing more. what else you need to know really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the basis of any good relationship. And everybody as well. And, we, and you, everybody kind of made sure that you gave you your space as well. But I'm glad that you felt supported by the ensemble because they were what everybody was doing it. But that's the best thing about theater though, right? When when a play can take on a life of its own fast and as it did in the buzzers and it has an effect on people that they're talking about it years later, it, it's not about us anymore. So yeah, it, it can be um, very... Uh, you know, wanky to sit around and, and, and talk about plays and, and talk about the moments and, and memories and whatever. But but theater is at its, surely it, I, is at its best when it takes on a life of its own. And it's not about anybody that was did the production anymore. It's about the play and the way that people uh, remember it going forward. We say this at the end of every buzz. I tell people that we learn something new about the show every time we have a buzz and every time we, we chat with, with um, audiences and, and hear their reactions to to things those conversations 
um, are some of the most, I think, some of the most important work that, that we do. It really, really was for the audience to process. And it really was for them to figure out what had just happened or how it impacted them or what they were thinking about. There were so many things that I learned from their, that I could tell they were bringing their experiences to the table. And it really, really was about how did that impact them and why sometimes their stories of why, you know, that touched them so much. We started a lot of those conversations by asking for a raise of, of hands of about people who either had or knew someone um, very close to them who had been affected by cancer, who had cancer. And I don't recall a single buzz where a hundred percent of the hands did not go up. I think every time we mm. opened with that question, 100% of the people who stayed to buzz about the show uh, raised their hands and were... were... I um, I can remember some controversial moments, though. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, there we have some people that are um, our regular audience members, and some of them are doctors, and mm. they got offended <laughs> by the show because they... Uh, they felt like doctors weren't represented in, in such a favorable light. And so we had to have a conversation. They, they would express that and say, well, I'm not that kind of doctor. Uh, and, you know, we had to have that discussion. We're just, we're saying, well, this is just one perspective. This is not the universal perspective. Yeah, but by the same token, I remember instances in the buzz where people would say, as a cancer survivor, that's exactly what doctors are like. That's exactly yeah. how I was treated. And nurses as well who would nurses say. Nurses would say that, yeah. Yeah, we had a lot of nurses come to the show. It's and like, they would, I know that doctor. I know, yeah, absolutely. I was like, ooh. Yeah, we, we, we've had to, as a nurse, I've had to save that doctor's ass any number of times. And, and we heard from a lot of nurses. Um, it's funny that doctors would think that that, it's funny that doctors would think that this show is about doctors. Because I don't think, it, I mean, it's, it's in no way. But he is the bad guy. I mean, he is one of the bad guys, right? He's bad guy. No, but the, he is coming across kind of a jerk. So he's kind of the bad guy, no? There aren't a lot of bad guys in there, but he's a bad guy. Cancer's uh, the bad guy. Yeah, cancer's the bad guy. <laughs> he's trying to protect you from the bad guy and just doing his version of that. I don't think the doctor's a bad guy at all. Okay, and he's driven enough. by different things. Fair enough. But it's it, it's funny. <laughs> and I think it's funny that's your verb again for trying to advocate for the character's uh, good intentions, yeah, which absolutely. might come off. Because even the more senior doctor, who did a have cold. a little bit more of a bedside manner, yeah. um, you know, Marcus Weiss, of course, uh, did a wonderful uh, portrayal of Doctor Kalikian. Um, and yeah, he had more of a bedside manner, and still, but it's still not a great bedside manner. But well, the doctors know. are not the enemy. I really in, think in that I, I think that they sort of battled for who had the worst bedside manner. I think Kalikian in that first the first scene oh, really? was Kalikian was ego, right? Yeah, Kalikian was oh, driven okay. purely by ego, and he he spends that first scene with with Vivian sort of tooting his own horn and and dismissing her intellect entirely. He uh, when she says that she's also a doctor, uh, doesn't he make a point <laughs> to to to? Uh, he's dismissing it and i think they're having like an alliance you know like well i do this well so do i well i do this so well, I, th do I. <laughs> I think he i think he believes that his his doctoring is certainly more important than her doctoring there's a doctor of literature as a, as a doctor of saving yeah, lives I do, I do remember that. yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and so it's, it's it's it was always funny to me the doctors who would who would react to the show in a way that oh this is an indictment of doctors <laughs> because i don't know that i i don't think that that you know, or someone's I, experience as, as going from tremendous sickness into death 
is a commentary on doctors. Or I think that maybe there is that stereotype for a reason, right? Or there that that personality being trade for a reason because it does exist, and maybe the doctors are trying to combat that with that you know response of that's not me, that's not me. I am a caring doctor. I think uh, I, well, Tina said ego, or no, Amory says he's all ego, and uh, somebody said he was all ego, and I think that was that is part of it that you have to to sublimate your ego sometimes in dealing and recognizing that you're working with a person, not with a disease. You know, mm. and I think part of what Kalikian saw, I mean, he sees her as research too immediately right away. It, it's keep pushing those fluids and. Uh, um, well, I, I imagine you spend all of this time on the scientific end of the spectrum and then all of a sudden you have to do this thing where you talk to a person and how awful is that? I just want to cure you. I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk to my numbers ever, ever. I'm really super glad that they can't talk back as an accountant. <laughs> as an mean? accountant. Uh, they just, so, so we they tend to very, see, very so at, at APF, we tend to see about between 20 and 35% of the audience will stay for a buzz on any given night. Generally for wit, that number was usually more than 50%. People would say for the buzz, but I remember specifically the night that uh, we had arranged with the Women's Cancer Center of Nevada, where nearly 100% of the audience stayed. And it was an audience made up exclusively of uh, healthcare providers who work specifically in the, in the industry and patients, women who either were going through um, uterine cancer or ovarian, uh, ovarian cancer. cancer or and uterine cancer. We had a lot of cancers. We had a lot of cancers that night, but an audience full of patients. Do you guys remember that buzz? Yeah, that was, oh, yeah. That was a big night. I mean, that, I, buzz, I, I, that buzz went off the rails because usually our buzzes are about the play. And that buzz was about uh, Nathan Adelson spoke, which is hospice care. Uh, and then uh, Gigi spoke about her cancer and it became more, it was more about everybody's personal experience their personal experience with cancer versus the the themes in the play. But I love that. It, I mean, just it, it, mm -hmm. that took on a life of its own mm -hmm. uh, and was not about us anymore. And that's that's my favorite thing when when doing a show is when you you start something and it has a ripple effect and it turns into something completely different. Oh no, and I remember I, yeah. making eye contact with you because we were like. Uh, what what do, what do what do we do now? Because none of the actors were were talking. It yeah. was just all audience, all audience talking. And then Joe was barely moderate, um, um, yeah. moderating it uh, because they were just having this interchange back and forth. And it lasted, as I recall, a, oh. quite a long time. It was another easily another hour. Mm -hmm. I was sitting next to the hospice representative, and um, I just remember her being so caring and thoughtful about whatever the information was that she was presenting and just being in awe about the fact that we were going through this experience with those people. It was I think it should, did, Amory, do you feel like it changed? I mean, for me, I feel like it's changed a little bit of, of how, what sort of impact I want theater to have. Because I don't, I think. Well, prior to this experience, and I know we mentioned this earlier with the Rosie story, uh, we always used to just do plays. Mm. Right. And I would even say in rehearsal, like my big sticky thing would be like when an actor was becoming very nervous or I say this in class, I'd say, oh, it's not cancer. But this time it was cancer. Right. And so uh, this play taught me that we have to spend more time understanding other cultures 
And it's not just about putting on a play. It's really understanding the different pockets of humanity and having more empathy for those pockets. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what wit did for me um, as as a person. And I think you can and you can take that lesson, I think, and and ascribe mm-hmm. and, and ascribe it to any play. I think moving forward in, in the productions that we do, I think you've carried that attitude forward, I think. Well, I try. Yeah. <laughs> I like that, that, you know, as you, many other companies refer to it as a talk back, but it's always most interesting to hear from the audience. And we always learn, as you say, over and over, we always learn something new from the audience. Um, But that particular show, it was my first show with the company. um, And we've done many buzzes. I've been a part of many buzzes since then. But those were definitely the most about hearing from the audience and it being the least about um, the actors on stage. I remember... Um, what was interesting, I, you know, I had a couple of people from work come to see it, um, you know, a few managers and a few co-workers, but then my boss came to see it and my boss's boss came to see it. And he's, he's pretty high up, right. In this, in, in the company I work for and I couldn't, and he stayed for the buzz and I was like, why? And then it turned out because he'd been deeply affected. He'd gone through it himself. And it was, as I say, it was just, as we recognized that so many people were affected by it and it wasn't. It was the best kind of um, show for me because it wasn't about the actors that were doing it and how we learned all those lines or how we got the you know hospital bed to turn into a vomit rocket. That wasn't, it, it became about something else. And I think people took something away from the show that meant something to them. And everybody processed it in a different way, um, depending on what they'd been through. Um, some weren't able to stay for the buzz. I had a friend who came who had been through an experience within 12 months and I was super worried about them coming, but they was determined to support me. Um, but she chose not to stay for the buzz um, because as I say, she had to uh, deal with it in her own way. But that's, that, those are my memories from all those buzzes. Well, I think that's, I, I, well, that's why we do it. We, those conversations, if you're not having those conversations about theater, you know, what's the, what's the point of doing it? Barb, how are you? Hey, how are you guys? We're good. You keep busy during a pandemic. Does that increase your workload at all? It hasn't really decreased it. Oh, that's okay. All right. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're you're um, effective and productive as always. We're joined by Barbara Caldwell, uh, MSN, APRN. And before I continue, can you tell me what those letters mean? You have a lot of letters after your name, Barb. It's just um, match. It's just a master's of science in nursing and an advanced practice registered nurse or a nurse practitioner. Nurse practitioner with the uh, Comprehensive Cancer Centers of Nevada. Is that is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And you were. Uh, we we've said this a hundred times. I'll say it one more time. Absolutely instrumental, not just in connecting us with. Um, cancer patients and their experiences, but also in serving as uh, the um, advisor for all of the medical practices that we had to recreate in in the play. So I don't know if you know how I ended up getting to know you. Remember Rosie? Oh, yeah, um, Rosie. Okay, so I was in the I was at the gym. And she comes in and she asks me, oh, Amory, what are you up to? I was like, oh, I'm working on this play called Wit. It's about ovarian cancer. And in that moment, she said to me, I have ovarian cancer in this very mm-hmm. cheery voice because she's a very cheery person. And I felt horrible 
in that moment. I just was like, wow, I really stuck my foot in it. And she systematically Mm -hmm. said, oh no, you have to meet Barbara. (laughs) You have to meet this woman. And I was like, and and in that moment, in in that split second, I thought, oh, this doing this play is, is, is more than a play. It's about learning about another community. But then I don't, I never told you this. I was so terrified in, in meeting you and also meeting the patients. Cause I thought, uh, in my very, um, bubbly way, I would say something that would be <laughs> offensive or hurtful or cause emotional trauma to somebody in the room while they were going through this really tough experience. Um, and then also I had called many of the cancer centers in mm-hmm. Las Vegas and nobody had called me back. So when I called you and, uh, you were like, Oh yeah, come on in. And you were like, yeah, come on. And I was like, Oh, it was really refreshing. We never had that sort of experience before. How did you, how, how did you key in on, I mean, you were the one who introduced Emery to, uh, Virginia Tengadal to ginger, ginger Tengadal. Um, did you, I mean, you obviously had a number of patients who were probably uh, along within similar conditions. What was it about Virginia that, that you felt was the, the, she was the one, the woman to, to bring Emily on this journey? How about her red sneakers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And her red hair. Her red chucks. Her red chucks. I mean, man, she'd come in there. She was it. There was just you know, I am wearing, this is my ginger ring. She gave this to me before she died. And she talked to me this morning. She goes, you put that ring on. Cause I haven't worn it for a bit when I, cause, and I also do talks for the medication that gave her six months of really good life near the end, a PARP inhibitor. And um, every time I go do a talk, she goes with me. So I don't know. We just had a connection and her sister who is so different, who's the bailiff, you know, who's six foot tall and drives, you know, packing a gun and drives a huge pickup truck. And here's Ginger. (laughs) They're just such cool people. Such cool people. Do you remember that first meeting with Anne-Marie and and, uh, and Ginger? Oh, yeah. Ginger. um, So in order to get her this new drug, you had to meet certain criteria. And one was to introduce a type of chemotherapy called a platinum. It was carboplatin. And I'm not kidding you. Wasn't it like 15 minutes before you walked in, she had a reaction. She was beat red. Well, that, was our, that, was, that was our second meeting. So in our first meeting, you introduced me to, to Ginger and I sat with her for about two hours actually. And she told me her life story. But in the second meeting, I remember the moment clearly you invited me in and she was having a, a anaphylactic yeah. reaction mm-hmm. to the, mm-hmm. right? And you were like, Amory, come here. <laughs> and you kind of waved your arm. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> you know, I'm a person in the theater. I am not in the medical profession. She's like, I, and you were like, no, I want you to see this right now. <laughs> and um, I don't know if this is too much information, but she had the colostomy bag. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And she was afraid it was going to burst because of the reaction, right? Yeah, she gave it a name. What was it? Flossy. She named her Flossy. <laughs> the colostomy bag was Flossy, and <laughs> yes, she. I mean, who who can't love Ginger? Who cannot love her? She's 
mm-hmm. you know, forced to reckon with. Did she ever talk to you about her the the way she immersed herself in the in the process of the rehearsal process with Wit? We know that she had a bucket list. When we, when we met her, she had a pretty extensive bucket list, and I think that that we got added to that pretty quickly uh, when she saw that that she was doing. Did you guys ever have any conversations about her um, her work on the play and with the play? It seemed to become a a major part of her life for a short time. She had people come in from out of town. Oh, it was a major part of her life. And remember all those people who flew in from the Dakotas um, who were her kind of extended family. She grew up in a really dysfunctional family. um, And apparently one of the relatives, I don't know, was mom, dad, were really into the fracking, you know, the stuff we don't like (laughs) with the oil. And, and, you know, she and her siblings inherited rights to those and they were making a lot of money yeah yes near the end she brought bought herself that little white mercedes yeah you know and moved from california here so her sister could help take care of her through this whole process so yeah all those people flew in and then her her doula her death doula who you met yeah mm-hmm. wasn't she there too she was from california she was. yeah yes. it was just an, an incredible and she had a pre-show party, right? Yes, so I met yes. I met the Dakota friends. I met because she lived uh, in California, the Oceanside friends. Yep. And so I thought to myself at that party, I was like, wow, this must be a really special individual if her friends are willing to come see her and be part of a show that she's not even in, right? That she's just supporting. Right. The, yeah, but it was she's, it was all it was about her journey. I mean, it, and yes. it represented everybody. Mm-hmm. It represented everybody. It was about everybody. So amazing, and to be part of that process. Who gets to be part of that process? Coming from a medical standpoint, you're like freaking out coming into the medical. We're freaking out going into the theatrical. I'm going to bring up. Uh, one of my favorite moments was the moment that you had with Andrew. Remember, he played the young doctor. He's supposed to give her a pelvic exam, yes. right? Isn't that like a, some form of a pap smear? Um, you need to do a pelvic exam to do a pap smear. In other words, okay. you have to, you know, insert whatever hands or speculum to get a pap smear. But that's all technically a, a pelvic exam. Yeah. So he, yeah, but he was specifically feeling for, in the play, at least in the context of the play, he was looking for tumors. Yes. He was looking for the, yeah, the tumor to try to feel. Yeah. And he was being very uh, British about it, like being very reserved. <laughs> and like, I remember you, <laughs> yeah, you came in, you're like, no, you gotta like put your elbow into it. <laughs> and you <laughs> started like really, you know, like kind of treating uh, um, Tina's belly like, you know. And she was uh, like, what? Lo- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was what was needed in order to make that that moment sell. Otherwise, no one was going to believe what it is that we were doing. And there was a lot of little specific things too. I remember um, we didn't know how to hang the saline bag. We didn't know how to insert the cat. Uh, what is it called? Catheter. Catheter. Yeah. yeah, we didn't, which is a thing. And it, I remember you had to, there was all the disinfectant yeah. and, you know, um, there was another thing that uh, I know it was a long time ago, but um, I don't know if you knew this, but we had worked on code blue right? And Joe and I couldn't stage it. And it wasn't until you were there 
Uh, and we had chunked out code blue that we were able to stage that because we didn't really understand what that particular process was like when a, a patient be, um, goes DNR. And you gave us, you walked us through that. You kind of gave us the tip off for every single moment because there was a lot of people on stage. Yeah, there were. Um, there were a lot. My favorite recollection, I don't know if you remember this, Barb, was that we were trying to find a crash cart. Wasn't it like a toolbox? Yeah, you, you said, just get a toolbox. <laughs> it's what it is. It's basically a toolbox. Because I was looking for something really specific, and I thought high-tech and whatever, and you were like, get a toolbox. I didn't know until we did WIT that ovarian cancer um, killed as many women. I thought breast cancer killed more women. I, I didn't know about that population. Yeah, breast cancer does kill talk. more women, but you know, it's one in eight women get breast cancer, but one in 85 get ovarian. But the survival mm -hmm. is way, way lower overall. Do as many women die of ovarian cancer now because of late detection? Yeah, we really haven't made a big inroad in um, being able to diagnose that disease early. Typically, it's stage three or four. What we've been able to do is prolong with these new immunotherapies, we've been able to prolong their life and give their lives a better quality, but we're not curing anybody. With ovarian cancer, once you get a reoccurrence, it then becomes a chronic disease. And we try to manage it like diabetes or hypertension so that person can live mm -hmm. a decent life, but they're never gonna be cured of it. Oh, see, it was my impression that because I think Gigi had ovarian cancer once, yeah. and didn't she? Yeah, she's, she was and on then, probably six or seven lines of chemo. So that's mm. a lot. Yeah. Right. So, but she had a big, large space of time where she went into remission. So, Is that true? Yeah. So typically, and I had a person in the, uh, yesterday um, whose ovarian cancer followed the same, uh, actually it was a young lady, it was her mother who died of ovarian cancer. So typically they get their first line of chemotherapy, they go into a remission, and then there's a period of time. And it di differs for everybody. For this gal, her mom yesterday, who's in her forties, it was four years, reoccurrence. Wow. So we know now that, okay, we treat them again, and then, that survival now goes down to two years. They'll live two years in remission, and then it goes down to one year, and then it goes down. And that's what happens typically with this disease. I see. What's the challenge in it? Why, why is it so consistently um, diagnosed so late? What? Because it's, it's a rare cancer, and it's deep in the body, and it, it, the initial symptoms mimic typical GI problems, you know, oh, my colon, oh. or I've got indigestion, or I've got this, or I'm bloated, it's that time of the month. People just don't think of ovarian cancer right away, much like pancreas cancer. That's also right. deadly and caught very late in the game. Well, you uh, changed the way I look at theater. Um, really? And I just want to thank you. Oh yeah, before it was like, oh, we're putting on a play and yes, it's important. And yes, these stories are important. Um, but then it, that experience helped me to realize that these other communities sometimes are overlooked communities. Like, <laughs> well, uh, I'll just bring up one thing. So uh, the COVID thing happened over spring break, right? 
for me. Uh, and so uh, when we came back from spring break, the play that I had my kids reading in women's playwrights was Wit. Oh. And, <laughs> and I was a little like that was what was scheduled on the syllabus. And I was like, oh, no, I'm going to be doing am I going to be doing harm here? No. And it was actually the best thing that could have happened for the semester because they could use the play as a vehicle to talk about their feelings, about what was happening to them personally. That's wonderful. And so, yes. And so that's one of the reasons why we had such a monumental experience with this particular production. And we had, uh, it was, you know, life-changing to meet you and, and Gigi. And uh, so that's why we decided to open with this particular uh, play as our first podcast. Yeah, I'll never forget oh, that you. experience. I'll never forget mm -hmm. you calling, coming in, supplies. That was just such an amazing, important chunk of my life, too. Mm -hmm. And Ginger's and her sister's. Barb, thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for doing this. And my pleasure. You guys are the best. You know, that was that was nice to remember some of those things. I had forgotten some of those stories and the connections that that uh, the ginger. I love reliving the whole thing because it was such a beautiful process. And and now, even though ginger isn't with us anymore, I still get to think about her and her memory is really alive. And also just getting to talk to Barbara and getting to talk to everybody and, and I, and about their process. And yeah. I've been telling people too, you know, I've been telling people for a long time that, you know, the, 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 um, uh, real intimate connection that, that all of us had as, as artists with that community. Uh, but I've been speaking for other people, you know, I've been speaking for our actors as well. I was talking about the connection that Tina had, the connection that Andrew had without really knowing that it was true. So it's nice to see that I hadn't been lying all that time. Oh no, everybody has their own experiences and, and also things I hadn't heard before. Well, I, well, let's, I want to thank uh, Andrew and Tina, Barbara, the memory of Ginger. Thanks everyone for showing up and, and uh, reminiscing with us about this, but we're not done uh, talking about wit. In fact, next week we'll be talking about the very intricate language, not just in the play, but in Vivian Baring's specialty, which was the John Donne poetry that made up such a, a huge part of the show. And that's it for episode one. You know, if you want to hear more, if there's a memory you have about some of the shows you've seen at APF, we'd love to hear from you. You can also uh, do us a huge favor and like us on Apple Podcasts or on whatever uh, platform you use to listen to these podcasts. It really does make a difference. This has been Behind the Buzz with me, Joe Cookin, and... Anne-Marie Preth. And we'll see you next week. Bye.